Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM out of Concord 101.9 in Manchester. Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. My co-host is Matt Robeson, and we are facing a very tense situation. The United States and Russia are in a face-off over Ukraine that smacks of the ambitions and fears that characterized the Cold War era. Threats, counter-threats, troops massed on the borders, stock markets jittery. And just this morning, NATO announced a buildup in Eastern Europe. The State Department on Sunday ordered all family members of U.S. government employees at the embassy in Kiev to leave immediately. And top Pentagon officials have apparently presented our president with options to send several thousand U.S. troops, warships, and aircraft to NATO allies in the Baltics and Eastern Europe. It smacks of something from a Ken Follett novel, but it's real. And there is nobody better equipped to help us make sense of the situation than our guest, Max Bergman. Max is a senior fellow at American Progress, where he focuses on Europe, Russia, and U.S. security cooperation. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the U United States Department of State, including as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he focused on political military affairs and nonproliferation. Thinking about the current situation, that's the right background to help us understand the conflict in Ukraine. So Max, welcome to Beyond Politics and tell us, why is there conflict between Ukraine and Russia? What's this about? So that is a fantastic question. Uh, and I think it's one where if you are following any of the discussion online uh, between Russia analysts, you'll see a, a great schism in, in views. There are the international relations scholars and theorists at, at many universities uh, and in, in many different governments that view this as sort of all coming back to NATO expansion and the United States and the West sort of not uh, taking into account Russia's security concerns. Uh, and then there's another school of thought, and I think I put myself in this latter camp, that really sees this about uh, Ukraine's domestic decisions and domestic orientations. And this is, uh, frankly, about where uh, the Russian regime of Vladimir Putin has sort of ended up. Um, in my view, in the 1990s, uh, the United States and Europe saw Russia as potentially becoming integrated into uh, into European security institutions, into the European Union, potentially into NATO. You know, when I was in government, I actually saw some old memos written during the Bush administration sort of pontificating about, you know, what would Russia's membership in NATO look like? So this was, I think, a live discussion uh, within the United States and the West, that there wasn't sort of an endpoint to uh, the expansion of the EU or expansion of NATO. Uh, I don't think anyone sort of uh, you know, in its senior levels, or there was no sort of serious policy discussion of saying, well, how can we expand NATO in the EU as far as possible to get to Russia's borders and then keep Russia out? So to me, what happened wasn't really about NATO expansion. Of course, NATO expanded in the early 2000s uh, when Vladimir Putin was president, and he didn't kick up a huge ruckus there. I think what has really pivoted this is that the color revolutions that, that, uh, kind of really kicked off in 2004 uh, in Ukraine, where Ukraine had the Orange Revolution, uh, where 
they pushed for sort of a pro-Western, pro-European leader uh, that was successful. Uh, and then again, in 2014, Ukraine had another uh, color rev revolution, another revolution, revolution of dignity in the Maidan Square. And in between those 10 years, you see a number of revolutions taking place around the world, the Arab Spring in 2011. And then, of course, in Russia itself, there was a major uh, protest movement, which Putin sort of saw the U.S. as deploying its quote unquote color technologies, believing that the United States or the CIA had something to do with uh, domestic discontent within Russia. Um, and so I think that has a lot, a lot to do with uh, with Putin's outlook that he sees uh, the West and, and Russia as sort of being ideological competitors. And where that comes uh, uh, to a head with Ukraine is that Putin is also a Russian nationalist that sees Ukraine as sort of fundamental to the Russian empire, to Russian power. And when Ukraine had its revolution in 2014, Putin made the decision that he was going to invade, that he was going to seize the territory of Crimea uh, that he was going to uh, send forces and weapons to instigate an uprising in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and then he wanted to try to sort of pursue the same tactics that he pursued after the 2005-2004 Orange Revolution, which is to sort of corrupt Ukraine from the inside and hopefully install a, a pro-Russian leader. But the moment you start killing Ukrainians, uh, that it, it turns them against you. And so what we've seen in the past uh, eight, uh, eight years uh, since uh, 2014 is that Ukraine has become increasingly uh, pro-European, pro-Western in its outlook, wants to be associated with the European Union, wants to have little to do with Russia. And so Putin's lost Ukraine. And this is, I, I think, the, the best analogy I can think of. It's sort of like a bad breakup. And she's moved on, doesn't want to have anything to do with the boyfriend, and the boyfriend can't get over it. Uh, and, and so hence the only action that Putin has to really keep Ukraine in his grasp as associated with Russia is to invade it. Uh, and I think that's where we are now is that this is ultimately about a failure of Kremlin policy uh, and a failure of, of the, in, in, in about the Kremlin not uh, wanting to be at odds with the West in general. Is, could you help us understand why Vladimir Putin sees Ukraine as so strategically important to Russia that he's willing to essentially risk a, a, an open armed conflict with NATO and the U.S. over it. Is this is this like if if the U.S. were in this situation, Canada allying with with Russia? Is this like if Maryland were to were to somehow you know play footsie with with the Russian Federation? Why is why is Ukraine seen as so pivotal? Well, I, I think, you know, again, it hits that sort of a number of different levels. So one, I think there's sort of a, a Russian nationalist uh, view that uh, Kiev and Rus, that that uh, Ukraine in, in, in Kiev, uh, Kiev in, in, the, in Russian uh, is sort of critical to the to the founding of the Russian nation and the Russian state. Um, and, and some of that has has some historical truth. You know, the thing about nationalism and, and, and history is that it can be contorted to sort of fit any various different national uh, nationalisms and national identities. Uh, and, and so I think Putin sees Ukraine as, as sort of central to the Russian state. Uh, you know, there's sort of a famous quote that Russia without Russia with Ukraine is a great empire, but without Ukraine, uh, it's just basically a normal country. 
and so I think he sees the loss of Ukraine as as uh, as uh, as a real blow to uh, his sort of uh, czarship, if you want to put it that way. That he's been in office for 22 years. His uh, time in office has been about essentially restoring the power of, and strength of the Russian state. Uh, he sees the collapse of the Soviet Union as one of the greatest uh, geopolitical tra tragedies. And so this is, you know, his, in some ways, his, his tenure has been about um, resurrecting Russia. And so if he can't, if he's lost Ukraine, then it's a big asterisk uh, in, in, his, uh, in his tenure. Uh, but there are also security concerns. And so, you know, this is where I think the kind of international relations school has, has, uh, has some real explanatory power as well. That if Ukraine is increasingly pivoting toward NATO, is developing its rela uh, relationship with NATO, then suddenly, it, you know, Russia has a sort of soft underbelly. Ukraine is a really large country uh, on the Black Sea. Um, and that if, if Ukraine becomes increasingly militarily powerful, more military aligned with, with, uh, with the West and with NATO, then that increases the security concerns for Moscow. It sort of increases the potential you know, front with any war with Russia. Um, between Russia and NATO. But I think that gets to sort of the larger question about whether Russia and NATO, and this is what I was sort of hinting at at the beginning, uh, are kind of intrinsically at odds. And Russia and the United States are, you know, destined to be enemies. And that to me is just not necessarily the case. Uh, and I don't think that's been the view in the United States and the West, but I think that is the view of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I think for him, we have to remember this is where the kind of cliche about his KGB roots, I think, are really relevant, that the Cold War never really ended, I think, for him and for many of his KGB uh, 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 allies and associates, which then, you know, a number of good books on this, Kath Catherine Belton's uh, book, uh, Putin's People, is the latest one, to really show the KGB origins of the kind of Putin regime, that this is sort of a restoration of the kind of security state within Russia, uh, sees the United States as its main enemy. So. Uh, in that sense, I think in some ways the threat and paranoia about the security threat to Russia is really overblown. The threat about NATO expansion is extremely overblown, in my view. Uh, and you know, as soon as Russia invaded and occupied part of Ukraine, it basically took NATO membership off the table uh, uh, because uh, no, NATO is not going to let uh, Ukraine in when it, it has it's fighting the Russians as we speak. It's just never going to do that because that would mean instantaneous war between the United States and Russia. So, you know, I, I think what we're looking at are uh, Russian nationalism, uh, s some security concerns, um, and then also a sense that Ukraine, I think, is going to drift further away. And so if you're going to act, act now, energy prices are high. So it gets into sort of many different things, which I think are driving uh, Putin's calculations. So the, the situation is so serious and um, the threats so real that I am not going to haul out my Putin, my, 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 my Putin accent for, for, for this show, which I would ordinarily, ordinarily do, but that seems a little lighthearted. I, I am, you know, it's interesting, Max. Um, my grandpa, Sam, came from the Ukraine in 1900, came over on a ship. He lived in Vinnytsia in the Ukraine. So I feel like a genetic, a DNA association with Ukraine and 
the threats that uh, Putin, Putin's troops face uh, uh, pose to this country. And I get the geopolitical situation. Um, what I'm thinking back to 2014 and Crimea and um, take us back, would you, and just talk a little bit about what happened in Crimea, Crimea what the world's response was then um, and, and how things have shifted since. Yeah, and and I think I think you're you're right to put Ukraine at the center of this because oftentimes we sort of lose focus that if there is a war, it's going to be devastating for the people of Ukraine, uh, and and frankly, there is a war going on that has been fairly devastating for Ukraine already, and it goes back actually uh, you know, uh, to 2013 to the summer of 2013 in the EU in kind of its typical sort of EU bureaucratic fashion that often wasn't necessarily thinking about the larger geopolitics of what it was doing. And what it was doing was offering Ukraine an association agreement, which essentially is a trade agreement between the EU and Ukraine. And if, and if Ukraine signed on to that agreement, it would essentially mean that it would alter Ukraine's sort of economic relationship toward Brussels, towards the EU, and away from Moscow and Russia. And so the Russians tried to counter it by creating this sort of Eurasian economic union between Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, some other Central um, Asian countries, basically the former Soviet Union. And so this was a, the choice being faced by uh, the corrupt uh, government of Viktor Yanukovych, who was aligned with uh, Putin, but you know was still president of Ukraine, was faced with this tough choice of uh, EU or Russia, um, and uh, ultimately was sort of bought off by Putin, uh, rejected the EU, and that led to massive protests erupting uh, in November of 20, uh, 2013, that then people took the square in Maidan and stayed, and they stayed through the very cold winter uh, in Kyiv. And then there was a brutal crackdown. Uh, there was Russian support for the brutal crackdown. Uh, um, more, uh, about 100 people were killed as efforts were to, uh, by the Ukrainian forces to take back the square. This ultimately backfired and Viktor Yanukovych fled to Ukraine and there's these great images of the Ukrainian people going to his palace where he had the sort of a pirate ship and golden toilets and just sort of the ostentatious corrupt wealth. Um, and so this was a revolution that was both about, you know, those sort of ignited because of the choice over, over which direction Ukraine would go, EU or Russia, but then also about the fundamental underlying corruption of of the kind of corrupt system in Ukraine. And so you have this, you know, this sort of cathartic revolution of dignity as it's called. And then what happens immediately after is that, uh, that Putin sends Russian forces out of their bases in Crimea because they have their bases in Crimea, which is a sort of peninsula in the Black Sea. Uh, and that was, you know, these are former Soviet bases and they take off their insignias. So they're called little green men that suddenly are occupying this territory. So this sort of, you know, this the spirit of, of uh, this cathartic spirit of joy in Kyiv is then, you know, all this concern about what is happening in, in, uh, in Crimea. Uh, they occupy and basically seize Crimea. And then they try to sort of instigate uh, similar uprisings in Eastern Ukraine. And if the, the kind of ethnic geography of Ukraine is basically the further east you get, the more Russian, you get in the further uh, west, you get the, 
more heavily Ukrainian, that Ukrainian in, is a different language than Russian. Uh, and, and so there's this uprising that is instigated by the Kremlin in Eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. Uh, and it leads to this sort of brutal insurgent war. The Ukrainian military was a disaster because again, the previous regime was incredibly corrupt. And, but the Ukrainians mobilize and start fighting back, start defeating the Russian supported forces. And then Russia comes in and invades with active military forces. And that fight has been going on now since 2014. And so it's effectively a frozen conflict uh, that has, has little chance of being resolved. There's been some diplomatic efforts, but it's not really going anywhere. And so that's the, the current state of the situation. And as we think back, just, just in order to be able to set the stage for kind of where we are today, which we're going to get into a lot more in the, in the second half of the show, could you just connect one more set of dots for our listeners? The last time most Americans thought about Ukraine was in the whole mess around Donald Trump's phone call with the president. I need you to do us a favor, though. And there was something having to do with Hunter Biden being on the board of an energy company and maybe an insinuation that now President Joe Biden, then Vice President Joe Biden, had inappropriately done something around sanctions with Ukraine. Could you just could, what is the through line to the current situation from that whole mess? Well, yes. I mean, Donald Trump was impeached twice. The first time was over Ukraine. And essentially what Trump was trying to do was uh, Hunter Biden, uh, the president's son, had done business uh, in Ukraine. and was trying to get uh, the Zelensky government, the new president, uh, President Zelensky, who is desperate for American support, um, uh, because they're facing down the Russians and tried to basically ex uh, leverage that, extort the Ukrainians and say, if you want to get uh, lethal assistance from the United States, then you have to do me this political favor and open an investigation in Hunter Biden. And for, it broke because a brave intelligence official in the White House was like, this is unacceptable. We're extorting uh, the uh, potential uh, Democratic partner and friend that is facing the threat from Russia. Uh, and it all came out that that is indeed what happened. Um, and, and Donald Trump was impeached for it. He was uh, acquitted by the Senate. And, uh, and it was, I think, the kind of latest charade of, of Trump's sort of uh, relationship with Russia, which uh, I think rightly brought a ton of scrutiny over the last four years. So, Max, we've seen we've talked about kind of a high level approach and some of the history leading up to the current really uh, tense situation in Ukraine in and around Ukraine. One of the things we haven't touched on is the geopolitical economic implications of what's going on, because I understand that there's something to do with oil and a pipeline and 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 at stake is not only sovereignty of Ukraine, but control over an oil pipeline. What, what's going on with all of that? Yeah, no, great, great question. And this sort of gets to, I think, uh, uh, the heart of the matter and, and why Russia may be looking to move right now. As, as any American can tell you, energy prices are high, oil prices are high, gas prices are high. And so what that means is that Russia, who's uh, economy is, is basically driven by uh, fossil fuel exports, uh, is flush with cash. Uh, their, their economic reserves are incredibly high. 
And what has happened is that Europe is dependent on Russian natural gas. Uh, uh, 40% of Europe's, of the EU's natural gas comes from Russia. And what do you use natural gas for? Well, in Germany, it's to heat homes. Uh, and, you know, a lot of uh, uh, business sectors and industrial uh, com companies rely on natural gas. So Europe is heavily dependent on Russian, nat Russian natural gas. Now, the way they get their natural gas is through are through pipelines, uh, largely that come through Ukraine. And so this has created, given Ukraine some geopolitical leverage over Russia, that if, you know, Russia were to invade Ukraine, then what would happen if, if the oil or ga and gas got cut off? And so Germany, I think, uh, uh, in, in a way that really uh, angered <laughs> not just uh, officials in the US, but in Europe as well, agreed to sort of move forward with a pipeline called the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. It's a natural gas pipeline that basically circumvents other EU member states, other European states, and basically connects Russia uh, uh, through the Baltic Sea uh, straight to Germany. And this pipeline has been completed. Uh, and what it sort of signifies is continuing German dependence on, on natural gas. And the pipeline isn't up and running yet. The US has been trying to get Germany to cancel it. It hasn't yet. And I think if Russia invades Ukraine, I think that pipeline is toast. But I think the larger question is that if the EU invokes sanctions against Russia, like really hard hitting sanctions, would the Russians cut off uh, Europe, uh, cut, cut gas to Europe? And one of the things that the Russians have been doing is they've, they've uh, not supplied as much gas to Europe as they have previously. That's led to higher prices. It's led to uh, a shortage in reserves. Um, so I, I think this is a really tricky thing because the Europeans don't think that the Russians will do this, but, but you know, the Kremlin isn't an energy company. The Kremlin is a geopolitical actor quite willing to use its economic leverage for geopolitical ends. And so I think there's, we're in a really precarious moment that if Russia were to invade Ukraine, the U.S. and Europe look to respond, and then Russia, I think, could cut, cut off gas supplies to Europe in the middle of February in a, in a you know, cold winter. And that would have a tremendous impact on, uh, on Europeans. It would you know, drive up the energy costs worldwide. So uh, it, I think that's, that's uh, one of those really complicating factors in how we respond to Russia and how Russia could potentially hit us back. Well, in terms of that response to Russia, I do very much want to get to the question of what could we do now and what should we do now? And you, I know, have been putting together some incisive thoughts, especially on that second question. What should we do? Before we get to that, I just want to call out, Max has appeared with us before. He was a guest on The Great Ideas Show. And I urge people to check that out. Just look up The Great Ideas Podcast because you went through a whole history of and, and some thoughts about our approach to working with our European allies, working with NATO, and particularly upping Europe's ability to impose those kinds of sanctions and military responses that might be key to this current situation. So I, I don't want to make you, because I really do want to get to sort of the here and now of this, I don't want to make you uh, recite all of that. I just commend that to our listeners to check out that episode if you're interested in that background of European capabilities, how we work with our European allies, and how maybe we should and could have done that better over the years. That actually introduces just one more question that I want to ask by way of background before we get to the here and now, which is, 
you know, we've obviously taken an evolving approach that you called back to the Bush administration and some some early thinking about, hey, maybe Russia will end up in NATO. That sounds pretty quaint. Um, and then in recent administrations, obviously, we've moved, you know, the Crimea situation was in President Obama's lap. We had the Trump, you know, scandal involving uh, trying to put pressure on Ukraine. And now all of this has landed in Joe Biden's lap. How has U.S. policy and thinking toward the situation in Ukraine, their relationship with Russia, potential military conflict in Russia, how has that evolved in the last decade and more? Well, I, it's, a, it's a great question because I think there's a, there's a consistent pattern, even during the Trump administration to some degree, uh, from, you know, in Republican and Democratic administrations, we saw this with Bush and Obama, that there's an effort initially to have, to try to improve relations, to reset relationship, to reset the relationship. Bush looked into Putin's soul famously in 2001. Obama tried to reset relations. Hillary Clinton had the reset button uh, that she gave to Sec uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. And then Trump obviously uh, <laughs> spent his entire presidency talking about how he won the warm relationship with Russia. But, he, but Biden, in this first year of his administration, I think you know a lot of Russia hawks were quite uh, disappointed um, because they saw Biden's effort to sort of establish the quote, stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Uh, of course, there was a summit between Biden and Putin uh, last June in, in Geneva and, and saw it as sort of, you know, basically the Biden administration wanted to focus on China and didn't want to spend a ton of time, uh, you know, in a, in a back and forth with the Kremlin because it had sort of bigger fish to fry. Um, and I think what that has sort of, the U.S. has sort of oscillated between trying to engage, we want to focus elsewhere, and then the Russians take action that forced the United States to really uh, get serious about Russia. Uh, in 2008, the, uh, Putin invaded uh, Georgia, uh, of course, in 2014 after Ukraine, and then in 2016, uh, Vladimir Putin attacked our elections. Um, and so I, th I think what we're seeing is the classic pattern of we try to improve relations, the Russians basically won't let us, or they take action that we find uh, completely uh, abhorrent. Um, that then led, leads to confrontation, and then we sort of forget about Russia, and then that leads back to trying to improve relations again. I think the big test for the Biden administration then is to sort of break this cycle. And I think if Russia invades Ukraine, then we have to basically give up on having positive relations with Vladimir Putin. And unfortunately, you know, no one likes to say returning to the Cold War because no one wants to do that. But when the Cold War never, I don't think it ever ended for Vladimir Putin. And so we just have to sort of recognize the reality that we're gonna be in a place where we're constantly need to be vigilant and, and effectively containing and confronting Russia uh, because that's, that's, you know, that's the relationship that they've effectively chosen. It's not the one that we've desired. So it sounds like um, it might be time for some tough love, and uh, you know, wishing wishing doesn't doesn't make it so. Uh, you've just outlined a view of Vladimir Putin that is uh, at once very dark and uh, also very realistic. Um, it you know it, it seems to be that he is he's an old fashioned Russian. Russian leader, uh, filled with both paranoia, ambition, um, and extreme nationalism, if nationalism means uh, reconstructing the Russian empire. And from your recitation of history, it doesn't sound like 
we've been particularly effective from Obama to Trump to Biden up to this point. He seems to be quite emboldened. So what's a poor country to do? Little old United States sitting here across the ocean worrying about its friends in Ukraine. Here we are. We're sending wink and blink in and nod to the to the table to uh, to speak with the Russians and try diplomacy. Is any of the diplomatic pressure uh, realistic? Is it a realistic option? Can it work? Would it work with Putin? And let's. And I bet I'm I'm betting I'm going to hear, no, not really. He doesn't care. And then we get to this morning's news with the Pentagon uh, offering the president military options. Are there what are the military options and what does it mean in the world if the two superpowers are actually embroiled in 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 this kind of conflict? So on the diplomatic track, you know, I think the, the it, it's it's correct stance. I think it's you're not going to go wrong if you bet against uh, diplomacy succeeding here. Uh, that said, I think it's it's well worth it for the United States to do what it's been doing. And I think the, give the Biden administration credit. The Russians, you know, basically took a hostage uh, in 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 the government in the country of Ukraine, surrounded it with a hundred more than a hundred thousand troops, an invasion, a potential invasion force similar to what we invaded Iraq with, and said, "Okay, you want to talk? Here's our list of demands." And I think it was right to sit down to talk. We didn't cave or concede, but we basically called our bluff and said, "Look, if you're." Real concerns are security concerns about what weapons we may be providing to Ukraine, about military exercises by NATO uh, along um, along the Russian border, or other sort of force posture issues. You know, we can talk about that, and that's things that we've talked about during the Cold War. You know, after the Cold War, there was a Conventional Forces Europe Treaty to sort of uh, make sure that you know there was insight and awareness and troop movements. We've had all sorts of measures to increase what is called strategic stability to basically make sure that one side doesn't think the other side is moving toward, toward war so we don't have a nuclear exchange. That is, we, we're actually good at working with the Russians about that. We still are doing uh, the new START treaty, which means that we have, we're verifying Russian nuclear missile silos and they're doing the same here in the United States. Um, and so, okay, Putin, if your concern is is security, we can have a conversation about that. And I think we've offered that. The Russians sort of dismiss that and they want some ironclad uh, guarantee that we will never ever in, you know, in the history of the future of the world allow Ukraine to join NATO. And we just can't do that because that's not, A, that's not in the power of the United States. B, you know, I think I think there's a, we couldn't do that if it was Russia. We couldn't make that sort of guarantee because it's you know things change in in the world. So I think the Russians have put forth uh, some absurd demands, demands they know that we'll never agree to. And the question is, are they just trying to create a diplomatic pretext? Um, and so that leads to the military options question. I think let's be clear: there are no, there is no U, U.S. military option to defend Ukraine. Uh, we are not going to send U.S. forces to intervene uh, on Ukrainian soil to fight the Russians. It's simply not practical. Uh, it's not only that NATO is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and therefore we don't have an Article Five obligation to come to their defense. It's that 
you know, fighting the Russians isn't like fighting ISIS, right? It's not like, you know, going to war against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. This is a near peer adversary that has its forces, 100,000 forces arrayed to invade. And if we ever thought about a military confrontation, we would need to deploy similar force posture to, to intervene. We would have to fight, you know, to regain airspace, to, you know, sea space uh, um, and, and, and to control the ground. Uh, that would require a huge force presence. And if we started to mobilize, the Russians would move. So if anything, it would be an escalatory step. Uh, and in the mere sort of, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, we should leave that military option on the table. I am not, I don't think that is at all advisable because the Russians know it's not feasible. And it would just merely give them a talking point, a propaganda point that, that see the US might invade Ukraine and then we would be threatened by the United States to our south. So I think we should, the Biden administration has been right to say the military option isn't on the table. What's been discussed today in the New York Times uh, is that we are talking about bolstering NATO's presence, putting uh, more forces in, uh, in NATO countries along Russia's border, putting more uh, naval assets, I think, in the Black Sea and Baltic Sea. Um, so to basically say, well, look, Vladimir Putin, if your concerns are NATO and security, well, this is going to make that worse. Um, and so that I think is just sort of strengthening NATO's posture. And I, 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 you know, we have to be worried about potential miscalculation. You put more forces in a region, Russian and uh, NATO ships crossing each other, aircraft, there's a potential for something to go wrong. So they, it's, it's still a dangerous situation. But I think we can take the kind of kinetic US going in guns blazing to sort of fight the Russians back in Ukraine isn't gonna happen, um, which means that Ukraine is gonna be on their own in this fight. Um, uh, uh, and that, that I think is is um, is why a military option uh, option for Vladimir Putin is is potentially really on the table. So before we get to the big million dollar question, which is what should we do? Where I know you have a lot of thoughts. Let me just ask about this scenario where there is a war that that you were just ending on a moment ago. So you were just laying out. We're probably let's assume that there is a large scale invasion that these hundred thousand troops do descend on Ukraine and there's a war. So just play that out for us for a second. You've already said, look, we're not sending in US troops. We might provide a little bit of assistance, but boy, I mean, you don't like to get into the idea of a proxy war in Ukraine against Russia either. So just what would that look like? How would that play out if there is a war? What's the likely outcome? Right, I think there's you know a number of different scenarios, and this is where it's really hard to predict. Uh, you know, there's some uh, analysts that look at it and say, okay, well, what Russia might be trying to do is create a land bridge to basically connect eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, to Crimea, uh, which Crimea is sort of cut off, and so it has difficulty with water access and transportation. So you could sort of invade and create a, a land bridge. Uh, another option says that, well, this would be incorporating the Donbass. You'd officially send Russian forces in to eastern Ukraine. The problem here with the kind of limited option where the idea would be Russia sort, sort of, inv Russia invades, but it's not a full-blown invasion, uh, is that the, you know, the fear there is that it would divide the West, that the U.S. would want to respond in a strong way, and Europeans might say, well, it wasn't as bad as we feared, nothing really to see here, let's just move on. I, I, I have a hard time under, I, I have a hard time sort of buying into the kind of limited scale um, invasion. And the reason why, if we go back to 2014, Russia 
didn't overtly invade and seize Crimea and Eastern Ukraine. It did so through little green men. And I think, you know, why, why do something so small? Um, and I, I think that there's a difficult question of where to end. Uh, you know, Ukraine is, is sort of the historic step land, right? It is very flat. And the only real geographic boundary or the main geographic boundary is the Dnieper River, which splits Kyiv, which at times has been the historic border and boundary within Ukraine. And the way Russia has sort of uh, arrayed its forces, it's, you know, they've basically surrounded Ukraine as much as they can. There are forces in the south in Crimea. They have forces in the east. They have forces in the north. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're going to do an overt invasion, invasion, you do, you invade. Uh, and so I think if that were to occur, I think we could see Russian forces going all the way to Kiev, potentially trying to take the capital um, and basically partition and dismember the country. Uh, I think Western Ukraine is, I, I can't see Russia going uh, very far, you know, further into the West where you get the uh, uh, into what is uh, we talked about earlier, the difference between ethnic Russian populations and ethnic Ukrainian populations that becomes much more Ukrainian further west you go, the cities like Lviv that have historically been sort of the hotbed for, for Ukrainian nationalists. I think you, the Russians would have a real fight. And I think they may be calculating that if they stay you know, further east, take a bunch of territory, they basically uh, can dismember Ukraine uh, and um, and leave it at that, and it can be a very sort of quick flat, uh, uh, shock and awe style invasion. That's how I sort of see it playing out if Russia were to actually pull the trigger to do it. And I think the problem is when we talk about the diplomatic options, they sort of back themselves into a corner where I don't see how you do this without um, how Putin climbs down uh, uh, with not, not invading and losing face. And let's just hope he's willing to lose face or we give him some sort of diplomatic uh, thing to sort of climb onto that, that can look like some sort of victory for him. So Max Bergman, I have now appointed you national security advisor to President Joe Biden. You are in the hot seat. You are walking right behind the guy with the Halliburton suitcase that carries the nuclear football. It's you and President Joe Biden and the nuclear football. And, and here you are. Um, the president turns and says, well, Max, first day on the job. Nice to meet you. Glad you took the job. What do I do? So well, take us well, through I, it. Take us well, through it. We've got a few minutes. I want you to please save the world. Yeah. Well, first, I... I hopefully the world won't end and I wouldn't turn to the guy with the nuclear football. Um, I think the main lever that the U.S. has is in the economic arena. And what I would do is, I think, uh, you know, number one, the oligarch class, right? Russia is one of the most unequal countries in the world. Uh, Russian oligarchs have come abroad. They've bought, uh, uh, you know, English football teams like Chelsea and with Roman Abramovich. Uh, and, and they have not been really targeted by uh, U.S. and European sanctions. Uh, there's been some efforts, but it's been really limited. And I would do a, a real offensive against the oligarch class. These are, they're a pillar of the Kremlin, uh, of the Putin regime, uh, and their assets are in the West. This is, you know, they've sort of made themselves vulnerable 
And I think this is something, you know, we should really target them. They can make their voice heard in the Kremlin. It would, I think, have a real impact. So that's number one. The second thing is, I think, uh, sanctions against Russian banks that would really look at um, basically blocking their access to the Western financial system. Uh, that would have an extremely negative impact on the Russian economy. The Russian state would have to bail them out. I mentioned the large Russian reserves. Well, they would have to go after that. They would have to sort of uh, uh, take those down. The other thing, and this is a relatively new area, is to look at export controls. And that sounds really wonky, but what it is is that, you know, when you think about your iPhone or any sort of technology that you have, your washing machine, uh, it has the semiconductors that in other technology that has been either made in the US uh, or through you know, US intellectual property. And the Commerce Department actually regulates the export of any of those goods. And we can cut Russia off from those high-end, high-tech uh, exports, which would hit their military uh, industrial complex, it would hit their aviation industry and hit Russian consumers. I think that would be a pretty uh, big impact. Um, but I also think that we should look at some military options. I think aiding Ukraine through additional security assistance. This is not a panacea. You're not going to turn Ukraine military into kind of the world's greatest fighting force. But we've provided them to this point $2.7 billion in aid uh, over the last eight years. It's their third largest recipient of U.S. security assistance. Um, and they are, uh, you know, I think you can provide them with, with certain weapons that can uh, be impactful in this fight. But the other thing, and this is gets to uh, the Europe-NATO question, is I think it's time to really look to bolster NATO. And I would do that two ways. One uh, would be to get the, to bolster the forces of countries like Romania and Bulgaria, many of which still operate, you know, Soviet fighter planes, that there was never an effort in the 90s to get these countries to modernize their militaries because what was the need? Russia was gonna be a partner. Uh, and it's time to sort of, I think, invest to really modernize their forces so they can be sort of a sort of stronger front line. And the last point, uh, mil on the military side is that we should, I think, take steps to really try to bolster European security. And the only way to do that, I think, is to push the EU to get much more involved in defense. If it's just about nation states spending money, uh, as NATO has sort of, you know, the 2% focus on budgets, it's not going to happen, particularly in a post-COVID world. The new German government's not going to spend more on defense. But the EU has shown that it can borrow money. It just borrowed $800 billion or 800 billion euros for its economic recovery to invest in digitization and climate spending. It can borrow money to invest in defense. And I think that's something we should push for. There's also a lot of other diplomatic steps and other things we should take. Um, but I think that's that's where I would uh, where I would go to. Well, you know, honestly, that's since we are drawing to the end, I find that to be a relatively optimistic and hopeful place to end because the, the thing you don't want to hear is in answer to Paul's hypothetical, there are no good options, Mr. President. And what I hear you saying, Max Bergman, is there are options here. We actually have tools in the toolkit and they pack a punch and we don't have to. The only option is not, hey, hand me those nuclear launch codes. That's that's the best thing we've got left. We have got to wrap up here. Thank you for walking through all of this. This is incredibly informative on this absolutely vital issue. Max Bergman, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.